All right. Hi there. I'm Emma Kiesling. And I'm Sydney Allen. And this is Uncovering Publishing, the UCL Publishing Podcast. This week's episode features Zayn Mahmood, head of e-commerce at Waterstones and one of the booksellers Rising Stars for 2021. Zayn has worked at Waterstones for over 13 years, where he started out as a weekend bookseller while going to university. We had a great talk with Zane about career progression, Waterstones and indie bookshops, curation, and of course, Prince Harry's new memoir. Okay, so yeah, we'll just jump right in. Yeah, sure. Uh, so one of our first icebreakers is, what is your favorite book to give as a gift? Yeah, um, I think it kind of changes throughout time. But actually, the book that I would probably say is um, the book that I'd always give is something that you don't know anything about. And it's something that I always think that that's the real pleasure when it comes to reading. Is like you've got these, you got novels, great, you know, stories that I've probably heard before. But actually, if you can give something to someone, they're like, well, I know nothing about this. I'm going to read this book and I'm suddenly going to get completely gripped. So the book that I would always give as a gift is actually a book called Nothing to Envy. Have you ever heard of it? So it's by a Pulitzer Prize uh, winning um, journalist, Barbara Demick. And uh, it's about North Korea and essentially the stories of North Korea and the escapes from North Korea. So first page of this book is essentially an image of Korea at night, the sort of peninsula of Korea. And you've got South Korea and you've got North Korea. All the lights are on in South Korea. There are no lights in North Korea. And that's like your first sort of opening statement. And I think if you read that paragraph, you're just like, tell me everything. Like, why has that happened? What's the history behind it? What's the narrative behind it? What are the different stories of different individuals that make that up? And um, that's the sort of gift that I give. It's probably not a Christmas gift, (laughs) if I'm honest, or a birthday gift. But if you want someone to just be like, right, just take me somewhere I don't know anything about. So those sort of books for me. Yeah. All right. Our second one. One book you'd like to see adapted for the screen as a movie, TV show, limited series? Yeah, I was thinking about this one quite a bit because actually the book... Can I cheat a little bit? Because the book that I would have always said uh, in this sense uh, up until last year was June by Frank Herbert. (laughs) Because it is, it's impossible to do well, right? Like, it's it's, it's one of, it's it's just, yeah, as a, well, let's just, let's just talk about this now. But um, (laughs) as a sort of world building exercise, I think Frank Herbert is definitely up there with the Lord of the Rings, the Harry Potters and everything else, but people haven't heard about it. And then I thought Gil Villeneuve's like really done an excellent job. He's got massive hurdles to overcome in that second film, massive hurdles. And I want to see how he does it. But that book, um, and then they made it into a film of cheating because it's already been done. And um, what I really wanted though was like some sort of HBO ten season version of well, that, rather than a film. Well, that's what everyone I talked to says. Yeah. They're like, there's so much yeah. going on in Dune, and they recently released um, behind the scenes of scenes they had to cut. Yeah. And there were a bunch of like scenes with Paul and Yue that got cut, oh, and did. scenes with him and his father, scenes with him and his mother, because there's so much, and it all mm. had to get condensed. And I always tell people who've only who've only seen the movie that is like just the introduction because it's the yeah. first maybe third of the first book, and you haven't even really met the fremen yet. There's so much more. Um, I've been following all the like cast. <laughs> oh my god! You know much more of it about me. But as in like as in how do you for a book that's been around for so long, like a Game of Thrones, like a Game of Thrones sort of drops on. They made this TV show. Everyone's involved in it. It's like they've really done a excellent job of sort of encapsulating it. June's one of those books that I've always thought, obviously Lynch did it and it was 
it was weird. Um, I refuse to watch the because <laughs> yeah. I, I know it's going to ruin my, my mind. But, but I thought, like, how do you build this world on film? And that's when no one's ever really done it. But then he did it, and he did it really well. I thought he did it really, really well. So um, that's the sort of book. I'm cheating because it's already made into a film, but... No, that's so exciting to me. It's yeah. my favourite book ever. Brilliant. Yeah. All right, next one is your favourite media that is not a book favorite. at the moment. Um, so sports. I'm going to go for sports, right. obviously. Does that count? I don't know if that counts as media, I said, I but like... NBA in our first yeah. podcast. Perfect. Said, yeah. Who is your team? Um, so I'm a United fan, so Manchester. Ah. So um, that would always be it, but... Um, what have I been doing recently? Uh, have you guys listened to Little Sims's new record? No. So she's like an Eastern North London-based rapper, grime artist, and I think that she's really nailed it. Um, she's kind of like, you know, like UK grime's got its own sort of vibe about it in in many different ways, but she's using like, kind of like Kendrick. I'm not saying that she's Kendrick Lamar. I'm not saying that at all, but kind of in the same way that she's breaking using news. breaking news. It's happened. The new Kendrick Lamar. The new Kendrick Lamar, but like as in she is using various different types of like different musical sounds. So in the same way that Kendrick would be using like a Kamasi Washington and start building from a jazz background, you've got like Afrobeat, you've got house music, you've got sort of UK South London based jazz that she's using a different artist. I just think that new record's really good. I'll have to add that to the list to further learn more about the UK. Um, our next one is what comp would immediately make you bid on a book? If you put on like an editor's hat, you like have your pick and someone gives you this book is like blank. Yeah, so when I saw this this question come to me, I was like, I think I could talk about an hour for this. This is my world. <laughs> well, obviously, I think the first first thing that I would say is a royal memoir hopefully, by <laughs> Prince William. If he releases that, we're on. Like, we're on. Come on, bring it on. Um, let's hear it. Um, so that's obviously the first one. I think... Um, can I give two answers to it? So I think that for me, from a pure commercial, I work for Waterstones, what would really, really work for us? So I think there's there's kind of two things. If you can ever find that sweet spot, like a, we call it like a... Or I would call it like a Goldilocks fiction. So it's not too... Not too highbrow, it's not Booker Prize winning sort of literary end, nor is it sort of on the sort of page turny quick read sort of end. Something that's slap bang in the middle that everyone can read and everyone can enjoy. It's really, really hard to find, but like a book such as last year's titles, Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, which you may or may not have heard of. Kind of hard not to have heard of. Yeah. Exactly, right? But it's the sort of book that you could probably gift to anyone or speak to anyone about. So something like that. Um, and then Watson's most recent book of the year was Katie Hessel's uh, Story of Art Without Women, which was brilliant, and it was a brilliantly published book, and it, and I think the author of South Katie is like, incredibly impressive in how she's talked about that. That kind of makes me think that if anything dropped in my lap where it's a cultural history from a very different perspective so if someone was like you know i'm not giving ideas to publishers here but if someone was to create a book which was you know female directors that's an area that people aren't talking about or um you know uh, oriental artists or something like that and here is a sort of easy way for me to pick up and learn about all of that history that's not really been spoken about in a in a cultural mode I think that there is uh, a, a need for it and a merit for it. There's also a real commercial, commercial imperative would make a lot of money. So um, 
Yeah. Very much agree. Perfect. Well, I guess now we'll dive into questions about you. Sure. Uh, so you uh, presented at Future Book in one of the panels. You were one of booksellers, rising stars. I think for twenty. 2020 pandemic, yeah. Amazing. And then when we were doing some digging into your work history, we saw that you've been at Waterstones for over 13 years now and are now the head of e-commerce. Would you be able to talk a little bit about how you got started at Waterstones and how you've moved through the ranks? Yep, sure. Um, So I started as a weekend bookseller, as quite a lot of people do probably with Waterstones. Waterstones is one of those sort of things where a lot of people have been there for a long time. They're kind of like lifers. They've done a lot of different roles within it. So I started as a weekend bookseller up in Nottingham. And uh, I remember I used to look after the sort of study guides and academic section and used to just like, you know, do a Saturday and Sunday sort of role. Left university and then uh, thought I'd do some more hours. And then that just naturally at some point just became my sort of role. So I'd done from a bookselling to uh, management roles. Um, so was part of a team that was part of the transformation of our main flagship shop in Piccadilly and then from there I was um, I think the role after that was kind of regional manager so I was regional manager for sort of at the best region so I had like all of the nice posh North London shops Islington, Hampstead, Gow Street which is obviously where we're near and our European stores. We saw that actually that you had a mix of London and Europeans. Yeah and then um, and then I was asked to look after the commercial side of our e-commerce department um, uh, timed it really well because I timed it just before we went into a global <laughs> pandemic which obviously isn't great news overall but was good for me in the sense that I got to look after a website when all of our shots were shut and then I've been managing that since 2019 and then most recently um, last year as well as looking after the e-commerce department I managed the uh, central books buying team so kind of like um, our, our, our overall marketing department the people who make the decisions around what books we promote and what books we buy. And. 13 years, lots of different positions. What made you want to stay at Waterstones as opposed to going anywhere else? Great question. Um, So I think a few things. From a personal perspective, I think what's pertinent is that it's kind of, as you can kind of tell, that I've had a role or at least been allowed flexibility within my role where I can kind of learn and grow and develop and take on new challenges. So from running a bookshop from being a bookseller and learning everything to be a bookseller from running a shop and running an area and learning about management and skills that you need there from real technical things around we can throw all the buzzwords out here like search engine optimization and etc etc um with sort of running like an e-commerce department i think there's a lot of areas to grow Also, I think what's really pertinent around with Waterstones is that we've been through a really transformative process ourselves. So, um, you know, uh, we've had, when I first joined, we had a, we were under sort of more a corporate sort of identity. We're run by a HMV group and that really changed when James Daunt got involved. And we've been on this sort of very long journey, which I think I've been a part of with a number of other key individuals, we've kind of transforming what we do. There's also this sort of bigger bit, which I don't want to make like a massive sort of statement about, but we do have a like a real moral need to try and develop what we do with bookshops. And I think we have a very healthy state in the UK with bookshops on the high street and what that means in terms of the literary community. Being a part of that and ensuring that there are bookshops, there are foils, there are waterstones, there are blackwells, 
that this that we are able to make and break books to tell people about a book like Lessons in Chemistry that everyone's heard of and it's hard to ignore. That's like a that's something to get you out of bed in the morning, really. It's a really admirable mission. I yeah. know from in my hometown we have not nearly as many bookstores and coming to London feels like such a privilege because there's yeah. so many I go to so many bookshops and I yeah. feel like I've seen so many and there's still more to go to and see. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that evolution of Waterstones itself. You said James Daunt was brought in in 2011 to sort of change it from the more corporate direction that it was going into what it is now. And it seems like you uh, maybe share a lot of those ideas, but then also have some ideas for the role that a bookshop should play. Yeah. Um, big question. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of little things within that. So I think the first thing to say is... Um, well, it's probably best to talk about what it was like before. And um, it was very much like a... a, a we were very much... We were bookshops, but we were very much retail-focused. And that's the word that I'd use. So what we had was, like, dick-dacks that would come down from a sort of, you know, ivory tower head office to say that this is what you do on a Monday and this is what you do on a Wednesday. And we had these sort of, like, days where you would change all over front of the store and et cetera, et cetera. All our bookshops were really homogenous. They all looked the same. And you would just be quite boring in that way. James's, James's whole sort of... James Dorn, I think he's, he, he's absolutely fantastic. I mean, he's the best bookseller of our generation. And clearly that's demonstrated in the fact that he now sits across both sides of the pond and looks after everything. Um, and what his main sort of purpose I think and what he really bought was that independent bookselling culture to a high street retail chain and I think that Waterstones is really interesting in the sense that I think we're running that way we're not very corporate in that sense there aren't dictacs that come from head office there is obviously clearly a central team that guide and and support the wider retail or bookshop selling culture but actually what his sort of thing was we, we got rid of various different things we changed our returns rates we buy less you know, these, these are going into real detail of sort of stuff. So, we've, we've yeah. actually, we've talked about it in yeah. class about how he was able to bring the return rate from what, was it 30 to almost 5%? Yeah, so, so I, I mean, I could, this is, yeah, this question is going to be huge. We'll probably talk about it for a while. But like, for example, just talking about returns, I guess previously to James's involvement, the way it would really work is that you would buy everything. And if one book sells, you look like a genius, but you still got loads and loads of stock right you've got to deal with that stock your front of stores are full you don't know where to put books you don't know what to merchandise you got to return it all now the way it works is that we buy less but we pick those books that we know are going to work we read those books we are presented those books by publishers publishers publish them they're presented to us then we get to pick them and decide what we're going to do so i think that's a key thing about returns just such a sort of you know niche sort of area to go into um, uh, but yeah, his his whole philosophy is about really bringing that sort of independent culture to how we how we book sell, and what that I think has meant is that what you've got is bookshops with real identity, right? So what we've got is we've empowered booksellers, we've empowered bookshop managers, we've empowered bookshop teams to have a real identity about what they need to do. 
So uh, uh, we're sitting quite near uh, Waterstones Gower Street, and Waterstones Gower Street has an absolutely clear identity for what it is and why it resides there. And I could talk about that for hours, which is really, really different to Forest Charing Cross, which is really, really different to Hatchards, which is really, really different to Waterstones Piccadilly. They're all very, very different, though they present the same books, but they present them in a different way. Gower Street has a cafe, it's got a record store, it's got a rhyme and stationery, you know what I mean? And it's got nooks and crannies and it's got massive law textbooks. Head into Piccadilly, you won't see that. Head into Hatchards, everything's full price. It speaks to a different market. It's got flashy, nice art books that speak to the certain demographics that go there. That wouldn't have happened in the previous guys because we would have had, you know, everything centralised, everything done in a certain way. Now, the manager of Hatchards is allowed to do what the manager of Hatchards thinks is right for his market. So, Kenny, does he have decision-making power over which books he buys? Because I know the central office is making book-buying decisions from publishers, but yep. then with the more federal model, do does each Waterstone store get to make decisions about what they want in their store? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So so what the way it would work is, is essentially... Um, there is an initial purchase of titles. There's an initial purchase of titles, and that is, you know, scaled out to all of our shops. But it is the shop's decision to decide what's going to go in its window and we're really going to go after this. This works for us in a way that is different for other shops. So um, it's just much more about empowerment. Yeah, so um, with <laughs> the... Okay, we've got the recent consolidation of Waterstones. Um, but there's also been a really recent success of all of, all of the independent shops in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, during kind of a really bad economic time, the independent bookshops have seen a rise in yeah. the UK. Um, any thoughts on that in comparison to the consolidation of Waterstones? How, how do you mean by the consolidation? Well, Sorry. so Waterstones has recently bought, like you said, Hatchards and Foils and these iconic bookshops that were yeah. independent for a right. long time. And it seems like Waterstone's philosophy is to keep them with their own brand name and their own yeah. personality. But you've got Waterstones on the one hand, and then a lot of independent bookshops. What's the interaction so, between uh, those like? How do you feel towards independence coming yeah, and from? And also, how much time do you spend at independent bookstores Ooh. during that? Ooh. So I think. <laughs> uh, no, you're not going to get. Uh, no. Um, so I think it's really healthy mm-hmm. for, for various different reasons. For the thing that I kind of mentioned, which is kind of where it comes from like a moral point of view about what we want to do to protect the sort of book buying and book reading communities within the UK. We have a really healthy, you know, reading public. We have to provide them in any sort of way that we can. So we're, we're sitting in London, right? Like in, in, a, in like a two mile radius, you've got some of these bookshops, you've got a Foils, you've got a Blackwells, you've got a Warpstones. How is that not really, really healthy for the London literary community to have various different options? That's really important for us. Iconic bookshops as well, like absolutely iconic, like the biggest, most famous sort of, you know, UK bookshops are Blackwell's Oxford Street, it's Foyle's Charing Cross, it's Hatchard, it's Gower Street, you know, Gower Street Dillon's as it used to be called previously. That's really, really important. So we're there in the sense of protecting these bookshops, providing them what they need with our structures and our the things that we've learned clearly over the last 10 years about how we can book sell, how we can be a profitable bookshop business in the modern age with clearly the massive com- competitions that we do have. Our, our role in this is to protect them, to invest in them, 
to keep their brand identity really, really clear and not to sort of change that at all. Um, there are clearly things that, that they need to improve on, which is why we've purchased them. Um, but there are also things that we have to absolutely protect and know that they provide. So uh, an example of that is Cambridge. Um, we've got a Blackwells in Cambridge and then it's called Heifers and then you've got a Walkstones in Cambridge. They both provide really, really different things. One's an academic bookshop. One's a much more commercial high street bookshop. And I think that's perfectly good. And the people of Cambridge need more than one bookshop. What's wrong with that? Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right. And the next one, this is one we're very interested in. Obviously, sure. Spare. Yes. Just released. Yeah. Can you talk us through the bookseller's perspective and, you know, how crazy that was? I know that one of our um, fellow students said that, what was it, three pallets in the back? And yeah couldn't touch them and just there was so much craziness going on how has that been for you guys it's been a bit of a whirlwind like <laughs> week to be honest um so um from a bookseller's perspective, well, I think the first thing to say is obviously like it's very unusual to have a massive title in like the second week of January. That's huge Why for was us. Why it released yeah. in January? I don't know. That was yeah. like, we were all asking ourselves <laughs> that. Um, I thought that actually it's probably that it's got its own sort of spot. If you if you okay. release it if you release it in some like you know traditionally you might release it in October or November. It's then fighting for space with everyone else. You'll see that, you know, it's not given its full window, full sort of tables, you know, pallets of books, back of house, etc. Um, they've released it. I mean, you'll have to ask Penguin Random House, but they, they, I, I think they've released it just then as a sort of, so it has its own space to sort to breathe. Also probably to do with the Netflix documentary that they had timed just after Christmas. They probably wanted the book to come out after that. Booksellers are excited about it. You know, it's been... Um, it, it's a the only living royal memoir, right? Like for 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 British booksellers, that's huge. We've obviously had loads of customers come in and ask for it. Various different opinions, I'm sure, about what they think about Prince Harry, what they think about the royal family. But clearly, you know, we've all seen the sales. The customers want it, and we're there to provide a service. That's the main thing to say, and I think booksellers are aware of that. It's not about your own. You know, it very much is, sorry, it is about your own opinions and your own recommendations about books and, and, and it should be and the conversations that you have, but also fundamentally you're there to provide a service. You're there to provide a chance for people to come into a real living, breathing bookshop where there are ideas and there are conversations and there are different opinions and there are, you know, some people might just walk past that book, they're not interested. They're going upstairs to the... English as foreign language section, they don't care about Prince Harry. Well, some people very much do. And I think that it's good in that way. And, uh, you know, we're busy, our shops are busy. So booksellers are always going to be happy so with that. Exciting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So you mentioned that you had listened to the Dan Kieran episode. Um, he, in that episode, he made the statement that uh, there's no way, in his opinion, for publishers to succeed in the future without going direct to consumer. Um, and that this might be at least a bigger part of the future for publishing. Of course, publishing hasn't changed in realistically hundreds of years. Um, how do you feel about direct to consumer? Do you agree that publishers should be doing this? Do you think that bookshops need to be changing their I mean you do e-commerce so does that need to be getting bigger 
Do you have any shit to talk about Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> um, direct publishers, direct to consumer. I guess is what does that look like? Are they, are, uh, as in, are they having their own bookshops? Are they having yes. their own sort of their own e-commerce uh, yeah, their own bookshops. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Um, what I would say, and I'm probably going to skirt around the question, <laughs> is that I would say that booksellers are the life and blood of it all, right? They're the, they're the main thing. And I know that publishers may, may disagree, may not disagree. I think there's a lot of debate to be had. But you guys have already said it. You guys are on a publishing course and everyone wants to work in a bookseller, right? That's, that's a stepping stone. It clearly is a stepping stone to other careers and other paths within the publishing industry. But the front line, if I want to use those sort of things, the front line is a bookseller emptying a box putting the book out, thinking that's really good, I'm really excited about that, shelving it, talking to their customers. You have to have the booksellers first and foremost. And also I think the other fundamental bit about that is it's a high street presence. Bookshops have to exist on the high street. They can't just be monolithic. I go onto an app or I go onto a website and, and order it. You know, for me, and I, and I, and I do have my e-commerce hat on, clearly, is Watsons.com doesn't exist without the bookshops first and foremost. You have to have that name out there. So publishers doing that direct, it's an interesting model. Um, they, they, they've not done that. So there's clearly, you know, we have a high street retailer. Waterstones has been around for a while. We've learned a lot of the tricks of the trade to achieve that. Um, I'd be interesting to see how they manifest it. Um, I was curious, you've mentioned a lot about, you know, the booksellers being the front line and how special these bookstores are on the high street. Um, we were actually talking the other day in class about what separates the bookshop from other retail spaces. Great question. Um, it's just so interesting because I know we've talked about this too. I personally, I don't like to go shopping. It stresses me out and it can get very exhausting. I could spend hours in a bookstore and even people who aren't necessarily, you know, diehard readers, they, there's kind of a magic to the bookstore. Any insight or thoughts on that? So, so what, why, do you, why do you find that? Oh, <laughs> flipping it back on me. Um, I don't know. I think that part of the reason, I think that books have a really kind of magic element to them. Yeah. When I'm in a bookstore, I feel like I get, to, I feel like I'm in a book almost. That would almost, I think, be my reasoning. I, and you, my favorite bookstores are where you can go in and go on a bit of a journey mm -hmm. and look at what that bookstore has decided to put out. And, you know, I love like looking at covers, reading blurbs, like looking at the books themselves and, you know, going like following that path, that yellow brick road yeah. to whatever section I'm going to. Often I go into a bookshop, I'm not looking for a particular book, I just like seeing sort of what's out there. Even foils, the way that they flip the spines of the yeah. books when he's talking it, well, the first time I went mm. in there, like, oh my gosh, that's there's, gorgeous. So, so there's a massive discovery element to the actual physical nature of a bookshop, which obviously has an idealised sort of thing in all of our heads, clearly, and that's, that's key. There's that haptic moment of picking up a book like it's a physical thing but it's more than just that and there's another real like I'm not gonna I'm gonna potentially sound a bit pretentious here but you know if you go into a bookshop as opposed to a clothes retailer or whatever else like a book could genuinely change someone's life or for uh, you know not in any way a law textbook about statutes may not do that right but a other book about history or reportage or fiction or, or whatever else 
could generally change your outlook on everything. I don't think you can get that in a H&M. And it's a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and there's a sense of it and there's a feeling about it. And, you know, I, I think there's pressures that come with that. Like booksellers are expected to know a lot more potentially than other retailers might know. You know, you know like I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to undersell someone who works in a phone shop. They need to know about every single new model and, you know, is it fiberglass or whatever else, you know. And they, they have a lot of knowledge there. But a bookseller could potentially be asked to know about the classics all the way to all the way to which exact novel is going to really help me if I'm going on a trip to Costa Rica or whatever else. It's a lot. It's a lot of expectation and it is that sort of two-way conversation that needs to happen. So I think I think that there's so many different elements of why book selling stands apart and bookshop stands apart. Great. Uh, wrapping up, as we've mentioned, pretty much everybody on the program wants to work in a bookstore, <laughs> Waterstones being at the top of the list. Uh, do you have any advice for people who are looking to get those jobs? Um, and how that might be different for someone who wants to work at Waterstones headquarters like you in the future? And also, what do you look for in a new hire? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit far removed from hiring nowadays. I'm trying to put my hiring back out on. So, um, advice on what we would look for. Yes. So, I think it's... Uh, I think there's so many different degrees to being a bookseller right and it, people come at it from different ways but most people when they sort of join they just you know they read novels they just want to go they have this idealized vision of what it is to work in a bookshop and I think that they need to come across as if they know that they're on a bit of a learning curve with it as well like you know everyone joins most people start to work in either a children's section or a fiction section because that's where they're comfortable and that's what they've read and then you slowly start to progress you slowly start to learn more you're like okay I'm shelving fiction for the first few months and now I'm starting to shelve art books I'm really interested in this and I go on my own little journey of discovery and learning I started in that way like I used to read mostly like you know particular types of very male-centric American novelists, and now I probably haven't read a novel in about seven years. Like, I haven't done it, and it's oh, just not my that's area. So fun, though. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, gaining new little expertise. Yeah. And... So, so they need to have this... It's a really hard thing to come across, but I guess they need to have this willingness to learn. Like, no one's the finished product already, right? They, they need to understand that, yeah, you might have read every David Foster Wallace, but that's not the be-all and end-all, right? Like, you're going to learn more and go on this sort of journey as being a bookseller. Um, I think, obviously, the, the key bit is still a customer service role. Like, it, you have to remember that. It's still a customer service role. Like, and not to say that retail and bookselling is much different, but you need to come across as engaging. You need to come across as someone that's nice, that will work to, that can talk to customers, that can recommend books. So um, that's kind of like the key thing that I'd probably suggest. Um, in terms of head office, like most of our actual roles, unless they're expertise in a certain area, so unless you're looking for a, you know, a developer or a designer or, you know, uh, you know various different things that we clearly have in an e-commerce role, uh, email coordinator, email builders, etc. Most of our roles are actually um, internal hires as it comes to head office really and that's really like like myself for example I, 
I don't think I'm I don't think I'm that different to to most of the people that I work with all come from bookselling and actually it's a real disservice if you haven't come from it if I'm honest because you haven't done what it's like do you know what it's like to you know I'm giving the idealized version it's not just about recommending but do you know what it's like to deal with a massive delivery of pallets of books and bring it in and actually deal with that and understand how a shop works so when it comes to head office I think you need to have some of that sort of grounding around how a bookshop works and understand what Waterstones does before you end there. You know, my mom always said, yeah. you know, she was a manager um, for just uh, restaurants sure. early in life, and she always said, you know, if you're going to be a manager, you need to know how to work every position. So yeah. you can jump in, you should be ready at a moment's notice, and then it helps you understand the company better. Yeah, 100%. Like, you need to be, yeah, that's that's the main thing. You land in these sort of, like, grand roles in the headquarters or whatever else, but actually we've all done it. We've all sold a book, we've all shelved books, we've all managed the tills, we've all understood that level of like graft and hard work. I'm not saying that we're, we're just all sitting on our sun lounges now in Piccadilly <laughs> Towers, but like you, you end up, you, you, have to, you have to have that sort of understanding of what, what it is to be a bookseller. And, and I think that's the key thing about it with, with head office roles that I think we're, like, I, I'd like to say I'm still a bookseller at heart. Like I think everyone else, I think I'd like to say that I can still do it. And I, and I like talking about books. And I'm interested in how they're going to sell to different people. Awesome. Great. Um, I guess we have a little bit of time left just sure. for, for extra things. Do you have any uh, really fun or strange stories about your time, maybe as a bookseller or all the way on through... Oh, God. Anecdotes you love. Yeah, for reference, because one of okay. the things we heard was, uh, you know, later in life, when people are in publishing, working at a bookstore not only helps because you gain that bookseller's perspective, but also everybody likes to share their stories of when they were a bookseller and the crazy things that might have happened. Oh, God, you can put me <laughs> on the spot here. So many, that's the real problem. Like, because you just, like, you are, like... No, I've worked in London bookshops for about 10 years and you just meet all kinds of you just and working in central London it's just all kinds of craziness that goes on um from you know the types of people that you have to deal with from the sort of things and management challenges that you have I feel like all the stories I've got are probably not podcast worthy <laughs> once you switch the microphones off I'll tell you them but um uh, I'm just trying to think of any sort of anecdotal stuff that I can't tell. How about I make it a little bit more narrow? <laughs> okay. Um, we didn't get a chance to ask you about events that you do um, with Waterstones and the importance of events. One of the things that makes bookshops unique is they have a lot of author signings yeah. um, and events around certain books and launches and things. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I don't know how much experience you have with those. Yeah, so I've never, I've always managed people that are events managers as opposed to like sort of created my own events programs. But obviously they're really fundamental to what we do. So I can tell, I, I can make it much more narrower and probably talk my experience of managing Waterstones Gower Street. Like when yeah. I, I did that for about three, four years. Um, so at, at that time when I when I took it over, um, it had a it, it was losing its sort of purpose and its identity. So it's been a very much a you know traditional academic bookseller, and it's there for the students of UCL and students that would come around around here. That had lost its commercial imperative, let's say, because there are other ways for you to get textbooks and they might be cheaper and also 
in some cases some course you know university lecturers don't even use textbooks anymore they just give you an access to a link and, and download it so right what do we do and I think that was our first meeting so what do we do we need this shop it's a beautiful beautiful building in the middle of Bloomsbury what is the purpose of this it needs to be a home a cultural home for the people around this area how do you tackle that how do you achieve that in a way that it's not just about selling books and selling academic textbooks. First thing that we do is put in an events programme. If you can put in an events programme that draws in and sucks in people, then you're making a reason for people to go there that's not just about buying a law textbook. And that was the first thing that we did. So we, we uh, for, you know, as a part of that, we opened the cafe that's on the corner um, of Gow Street and Mallet Street, which really is there. And, you know, you can see it's on the ground floor. It's always really incredibly busy, which you may have <laughs> experienced with the queues. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we can go in. I'll get you guys to nudge our way. Um, but yeah, they, they we opened that, and that was that's in the same sort of way. Like, let's make another reason for people to come here. That's not just about coming to go buy a book. You're going to come to you're going to come to the cafe. Then we cleared the basement area at the same time, and now that's a little event space. And we did loads of interesting stuff. I remember, like when I was there, was it Michelle Obama's book came out. And obviously that was going to be huge anyway. Everyone was going to buy it. But let's just do something different, right? So I remember everyone who came to that event had to write a letter to Michelle Obama, like a love letter to Michelle Obama. And they all had to sit, stand there. I remember being there and they had to stand there and like read it out. It was just different. It was just like you can have, and we had multiple events going on at the same time. You'd have that in the basement. You have like Sally Rooney talking about a new novel in the basement, right? We could talk about Sally Rooney if you want to. Um, uh, but, and then you might have like a, a small five-seat, like what is an event, right? An event is just, it doesn't have to be 30 people or 100, 200 people in, in Broadgate for future book. It doesn't just have to be that. It could just be three people sitting around like we are talking about a book in, in a shop. So we had book clubs. We had big events. We had big signings. There's a commercial purpose to it. It brings in money. Clearly, you can align a book and a ticket option, but also it just has this sort of discourse that starts. So that's kind of always been my feeling around events, that they're absolutely, they're one of the key pillars of how you build a great book, bookshop. Easier in London than it might be outside of London, um, but even outside of London, like you just, you just need to pull on these different things that make people give it purpose. I think book clubs are great, and I've noticed most Waterstones that I'm aware yeah. of will have their own book club situation going on. Yeah. Have you met any famous authors? Yeah. Like, what's the oh, I've met, I've met loads. I've met loads. Uh, what's my anecdotes? So you know, I've met. Who who, do you, who would you like to with me? I've met. I've probably met them. Sally Rooney. I've met George. I was in the lift with George R. R. Martin, um, <laughs> which was a bit random. David Beckham. Um, so all the sort of celebrities. I remember Hillary Clinton turned up. Have you ever met? Do you know N.K. Jemison? N.K. Jemison. Yeah. The yeah. Uh, I think so. I mean, my own tastes probably are more on the sort of history end or smart okay. thinking sort of end. So you know, um, that side of things. Um, Who's really famous? Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we did. There was an event wow. at UCL. So yeah, you you meet them. You realise they're just normal people who wrote books, and they're they're just like that in the same way. Normally quite shy. Yeah. 
like other than the celebrity end of it um so yeah it's quite fun actually throughout uh throughout your sort of experience i'm trying to think of like the coolest person i've met through work Khalees. Khalees. Khalees was a wow. yeah she was really cool yeah not Prince Harry, though. He hasn't turned up. He, he hasn't responded to our emails. Gosh. It's, it's funny seeing it as an American. It is it really? so interesting. Like, just watching. What, as in, like, what, selling really well in America? Oh, we're fast. Oh, yeah. Out. Okay. It's so entertaining. Right. You know what? It, it feels like I have no stake in it. I'm just... Really? Like, Why watching. not? Do you, think, do you think we look ridiculous in that we've got this... I mean, you guys can't really throw stones at us, to I'm, be fair. <laughs> so, um, America is so good at sort of like celebrity culture and celebrity yeah. worship, and so I watch it kind of like I watch the Kardashians, which probably yeah. sounds so blasphemous. No, but, not at all. But, um, it is giving off that vibe lately. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's uh, a bit. It's a bit ridiculous, but I guess it's. I guess it's. So, there's something. It's, you know, it's celebrity, it's kind of obsessive, it's all weird. The one thing that I'd say is kind of cool about it, maybe not to give my opinions on royalty or, or whatever else, but there's a real historical lineage. Like, this goes back, like, hundreds of years. I'm like from the first royal memoir. That's a big... It is actually quite shocking. That's yeah. Yeah. Big deal. But it, there is, yeah, definitely that historical component to it. Cause it. And it's crazy to be here for that. I feel like since we've shown up, mm. so much has happened. Like three prime ministers, yes. you know, a royal so, memoir. It's all kicks yeah. off since. Yeah, like, like they're literally the duchy of, like, Lancaster. Like, they won the War of the Roses. Like, it goes back in that sort of way. And you're just like, oh, this is mad. Like, there's actual history here. And, you know, you're just hearing about two brothers in the end you're just hearing about two brothers getting into a punch up like who's not who's not done who's not done that like we've all we've all done it with our brothers and sisters like Like, people not fight their brothers yeah because i know i do it is one of my favorite things about living here is how old so many things are really everything has history and so people you can't think about how much history a lot of the places you go have because it's everywhere versus America is such a baby country where we're so young. Yeah, I, I was told that one of the key ways you can spot somebody that's American is that they stare at all the buildings as they walk by and I can't help it. And I'm taking pictures oh, really? too. I, that, uh, I actually just bought a book, what is it, Rice's um, Drawing Buildings. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Reading Buildings or something like that. And I'm just always trying to figure out what's the history, what's the date of this building. And I know when I walk around, I look. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I, you get used to it, though, right? Like, you yeah. stop looking at Big Ben every time that you go past it. But, yeah, it's really cool, like, the City of London. I always think about the City of London and, like, the real history there. And, like, you've got those things along the embankment. Um, so you've got all these things along the embankment. Like the so you've got the strand, and then you've got all of these sort of, like, gargoyles and demons and sphinxes and they all face the city of Westminster to keep the demons out of the city of London you're like this is true history on its way to the tower but obviously you know you're just on the rush to get on the tube so you probably don't (laughs) look at it like you're surely in that world now like you're just sort of used to the mad rush of it all alright I think we can wrap up there thanks for coming so much thank you so much thank you thanks